I dismissed David a little bit early. He normally does the scripture reading, but uh, I thought a, uh, an intro to our scripture reading would be helpful this morning. We're about to begin a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount that will take us up till and through Easter. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known parts of Scripture. I'm, I'm sure that uh, many of you have heard sermons, uh, maybe whole series, maybe multiple whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. There is no shortage of material. I guarantee you nothing that I will say uh, in the next however many weeks will be original. Praise the Lord. Uh, those things have, uh, e- everything has been said, and yet it's so good for us to go and to dig our teeth into it um, and to feed on it. I I use those words uh, intentionally this morning. While it's familiar, uh, sometimes we lose its power in the familiarity. Here are some quotes from an article that was by Virginia Stem Owens. She is a professor at Texas A&M University. This is actually written close to 30 years ago, Um, but uh, I think that what it uh, conveys is, is still true, maybe even more true. So, what she did is she's an English professor at Texas, at Texas A&M, and she assigned the reading of the Sermon on the Mount as part of literature. It was in one of their textbooks, and she assigned it to them. And the, the folks responded in papers to what they had said. Here were some of the responses to the Sermon on the Mount from her papers, from her students. The stuff of the church's preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking that it is a sin or not. I did not like the essay, The Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and, make me, and made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme stupid and unhuman statement that I have ever heard. You always appreciate people calling Jesus stupid. Many people believe that this sermon should be taken literally. I believe, on the other hand, that because the scriptures have been interpreted from so many different languages, we should use them as a guide, not law. Another fallback is that certain of these beatitudes are irrelevant to current lifestyles. Loving your enemies, for instance, is obviously not something to be observed by the majority today. In this essay, the author explains that the doctrines of, the era, of an era past, so in this essay, the author explains the doctrines of an era past, which cannot be brought into the future in the same context. This essay now cannot be taken the same way it was written. It can, however, be used as a guide for good manners. Now, we, we hear those things, and I, I don't know what we think about those, um, whether we would say it so baldly or so uh, stridently, probably not, uh, as folks that are in the church, but the ideas that they, uh, that they convey, this idea of do we need to be perfect, this idea of, you know, is that really a sin? Uh, or even our approach to it, like what, what is the sermon asking 
from us? Is it, is it something that we are just to externally uh, conform our life to? Is, is it a guide to good manners? Does it, just, does it make us better people? What, what exactly is going on? These, these are questions that are not far from us. She uh, concludes or she uh, observes, she says, I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. For me, this somehow validates the significance of the scriptures. Whereas the scriptures almost lost their characteristically astringent flavor during the past century, the current widespread biblical illiteracy, and note she's saying this 30 years ago, sure it's gotten only more, should catapult us into a situation more nearly approximating that of the original first century audience. Uh, so she's saying, you know, there's actually something good. If this sounds offensive, if this sounds jolting, if this sounds uh, very a-contextual, there's something there to be grabbed onto. There's, there's something that's encouraging because, and, and this is really the thesis, uh, not only for today, but, but for, uh, I mean, really for everything that we do here, but certainly for the Sermon on the Mount, is that God doesn't just want to, to make us a little bit better. God wants to radically transform who we are at the core. And so what I, what I want to do today is I want to kind of take an overarching look at the Sermon on the Mount and, and deal with what that means that God wants to see us uh, core transformed, radically transformed from the very heart of who we are. So I want to focus on the Beatitudes a little bit one in particular. Uh, we're going to come back to that next week, and we're going to look at the Beatitudes as a whole. But read with me now as I read through uh, Matthew 5, 1 to 12, and then also verse 20. Seeing the crowds, he went up into the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thus far, the reading of the Word of God for now. This is the Word of the Lord. Lord, as we open this, um, we pray that you would open us. Uh, as we read your Word, may we be read by your Word. 
Father, help us to, to put away, uh, put aside those distractions. Help us to put aside our assumptions, uh, maybe that we've developed over the years that are, are blocking us or obstructing us from seeing what you really want us to see. Help us to see uh, into the heart of what you want us to understand about the gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the idea today and throughout is that the Sermon on the Mount, disciples are made privy to a way of life that both honors Jesus as king and brings blessing for those who follow him. A couple of things just to highlight for you. You notice that at the beginning it says, you know, Jesus takes his disciples up into a mount and he opens his mouth and he begins to teach them. It's interesting, at the end of the the um, at the end of the sermon, it says the, the crowds were amazed. You see that printed for you. Uh, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Uh, I think there are two things to note here. There's a distinction between disciples and crowds. Uh, disciples uh, are, are are those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus and are really seeking to follow him. That's, that's what it means to be a disciple. It's a, a learner, somebody who is following Jesus. And as Jesus gives this set of teachings, uh, it, it is something that disciples will grab onto and that disciples will seek to employ. Crowds uh, may include disciples, but is also probably a, a bigger subset than disciples, uh, a bigger group of people. And, and some of the crowds believe and follow, and some of the crowds hear, but they don't hear with the heart. They see, but they don't see with the eyes that God has given. And, and so they go on their own way, essentially rejecting, either passively or actively, rejecting the teaching of the Lord. So this, you know, if you're going to be a disciple, this is for you. Like if you want to follow Jesus, uh, this is a teaching that is designed for you. There's lots of other things we could say about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'll say a few of them now. I'll probably refer to other ones later on. Uh, there is some sense of a New Testament iteration of, of the giving of the law. Uh, as you saw in the Old Testament, and we just went through this in Exodus, when God calls a people out, he gives them a way of life, uh, brings them to Sinai, he gives them the law, he gives them the application of the law as it gets laid out. We looked at that in detail in Exodus, and so here Jesus sort of reiterates that. Uh, he, he gives the law. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he, he gives the application of that in a variety of different ways in terms of oaths and murdering and sexuality. And we're going to look at all of these different things as we go. So there is very much a, a pattern that God follows with his people. When he calls us, uh, he he puts us on a path and he tells us the way of life that we are to follow. Um, 
we also could probably say that, uh, you know, if you read through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount out loud, it'd probably take you 10 to 15 minutes. Um, I, I'm sure that these are a collection of teachings uh, that Jesus gave probably over a period of time uh, as Matthew organizes it. We have a similar uh, set of teachings in Luke. Uh, sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plains because it said that he went to a flat place, and there are much overlap, but there is also some differences in that teaching. Uh, Jesus, over three years, I'm sure said a lot of similar things at different times, a and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Mark not being an apostle, but uh, uh, the gospel writers, they, they organize and give these things to us. And, and so here Matthew is recalling a time when Jesus took his disciples up into a mountain and he gave them a, a series of teachings and this is what we have here. So there some prolegomena in terms of uh, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, how it fits in, you know, script, you know, broader context of scripture, how do we understand this particular set of teachings, but what is its heart? And that's really what I want to get at today. When you look at the, the Beatitudes themselves, uh, one of the ways to organize them is to see uh, one, two, and three. Uh, so blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek as, as being qualities of heart uh, that, that come to a point in this hungering and thirsting after righteousness and then flowing out of that is mercy, purity in heart, uh, and peacemaking. Uh, this has been observed by a number of different scholars, and I, I think that there is some real wisdom in seeing that. Uh, the heart, and, and this is true of all sort of Aramaic Hebrew thought, is, is always at the center. You know, we, we think about starting with like a thesis sentence at the beginning, you know, a concluding sentence at the end, and that's where we get our emphasis. They thought differently. They work from the middle out. And so the middle here is this idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And this is what I would say is actually the heart of the entirety of the sermon. It, it's not just the, the heart of the Beatitudes. But, but this is what Jesus is after. This is what Jesus is saying characterizes the, the follower of Christ. It's somebody who is hungry. Now, we see this throughout the scriptures in a whole number of different ways. We had earlier in our uh, liturgy, we had Psalm 63 where, where David is saying, uh, He's saying, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's talking about this thirst. In Psalm 34, we see, uh, you know, the psalmist say, taste and see that the, the Lord is good. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, your labor for that which was not, does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good, delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. This, this hungering, this thirsting, it's a characteristic 
of those who pursue God. We see it in the New Testament as well. First uh, Peter chapter 2, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, the writer there says, um, he says, uh, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Uh, You can't handle solid food. Uh, For everyone who lives on milk, though, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by a constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Here, Here, I think, is the point. You know, as Jesus connects and, you know, in the the Beatitudes, which are sort of the gateway to the sermon as a whole, the heart of the Beatitudes being this idea of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, Jesus is saying that there is an attitude of life for disciples uh, that is longing for something solid, that is longing to be filled, that is longing uh, to to be satisfied. And and that is what it means to be a disciple. We'll talk more about this next week, but, but these, you know, the blessings, you know, when Jesus says, blessed are the uh, it, it, all of these are, are on the receiving end of things, the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the hungry. The, the blessing is in the weakness. The blessing is not corresponding to strength. And that just sounds so weird to us, doesn't it? I, I mean, we would normally think, you know, blessed are those who don't have any hunger. <laughs> you know, we, we see, see hunger as a bad thing. I mean, hunger is, is something to be solved. Hunger is something to be avoided. A- and we have blessing if we are filled. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, you're blessed if you're broken. You're blessed if you're hungry. You're blessed if you are poor in Spirit. One of the keys to understanding uh, the Beatitudes, one of the keys to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, then, is, is that these, uh, this message is predicated on the grace and the mercy of God. The recipients are, and I'm quoting here, uh, those who receive the good news, not that have earned it, not that have mastered it, but they are in a position of need and they have received the good news. Because they are the poor, the oppressed, they make no claim upon God for their own achievements. They do not merit God's kingdom, but they await His mercy. The emphasis on God's mercy is essential at the beginning of Jesus' teaching especially at the beginning of the present discourse with its description of the righteousness of the kingdom, which has all too often been taken as a, as a new form of legalism by which we can earn 
our way into the kingdom. I hope that that helps you. You know, as we, as we come to this, and week after week, we're going to come back to that, because we are going to talk about morality. I'll say, just about, I'll say more about that in just a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about a way of life, but it flows from hunger. It flows from poor in spirit. It flows from our awareness of our need to receive now, it's focused on righteousness, and this is the second point here, free of ditches, just a word about righteousness. It's interesting in the passages that I gave you here, uh, if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, 7 and 8, uh, there Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He also says, and this is the verse that I had read earlier, chapter, or verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14, so this is still the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are maybe unaware, Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 and cha- through chapter 7. So it's those three chapters in Matthew. In chapter 7, 13 and 14, Jesus says there's a broad way that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow way that leads to life. And so the narrow way is what we're called to, but we need to stay out of the ditches on either side. What's interesting is, and I think, again, going back to Virginia Owens and her students, you know, so many people, when they read the Sermon on the Mount, they focus on uh, the ethics that are being laid out. They focus on external righteousness and obedience. And so when we think of Broadway and narrow way, we think of those who are living righteous lives and those who are living unrighteous lives. But what Jesus says is you miss the mark if you pray like the Gentiles. He says that very clearly in, in chapter 6, 7, and 8. He says, don't be like them. You know, they, they have their own way of doing things. They are irreligious. They are uh, against God. But he also says, don't be like the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were incredibly righteous. Uh, they, they, uh, they were law followers. They, they took the law and then they added to it. They had some 635 extra laws, some that were positive, things that you were to do, some that were negative, things that you were to avoid. They were righteous uh, beyond that. But Jesus says, what I'm talking about here is a different kind of righteousness. It's a righteousness that's not like theirs. So he's not saying the two ways are righteous and unrighteous. He's saying something different. Uh, and that's the question that we need to ask because we're hungry, but we're hungry for the kind of righteousness that Jesus offers. And it's not moralism. Uh, moralism we might define as uh, in order for you to be accepted by God, there are behaviors that you need to conform to, to be loved, to be accepted, to be blessed. Uh, this is how we often approach this. Now, that's not to say, and I mentioned this just a minute ago, that Jesus doesn't talk about morality. Uh, he, does, he does talk about that. He does talk about a way of life, but it's a way of life that believers 
walk in because they are transformed by the Spirit's power uh, to pursue uh, the heart of God as He reveals it for human flourishing. Do you hear the difference between moralism and morality? Moralism is the external things that we do in order to make ourselves lovely. Morality are the things that we do because we have been received and made lovely because we have the mercy of God and we know that we belong to him. We're not trying to prove ourselves in order to be accepted but we are accepted. So, and, and this is the biblical principle. I mean, longitudinally, we see it throughout the scriptures. You know, when God gives the Ten Commandments, what does he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of bondage. Grace comes before law. And, and we see it so clearly here in the Beatitudes as they are laying out for us the emptiness of heart that receives the grace of God. Grace comes before law. Word yet about righteousness, because what, is, what Jesus is talking about here, and it's interesting, he actually uses the accusative case, not the genitive case. Genitive case, uh, you know, would be our way of saying sort of possessive or partitive, some of uh, righteousness. So it's not, it's not just that we need some righteousness, uh, he's not saying that at all. He's saying you need something completely different. Uh, you, you don't just need part of righteousness. You need a righteousness that is apart from yourself. And, and this is what we see then, you know, pushed throughout the sermon is that there is something transformative that happens to us when we're accepted by the Lord Jesus uh, we are given a righteousness. Righteousness, scripturally speaking, has this idea of justification in it. Uh, justice, justification, righteousness, it's all the same root. So righteousness speaks to this idea of, of a rightness. You're accepted, you're loved, you are, uh, you're validated. And Jesus says, that is what you're hungry for. You're hungry, not that you can do some good things, but you're hungry that, to be validated. You're hungry to be accepted. We, we know what this is like. I mean, we live this constantly, whether it's a job or whether it's a relationship. Uh, you know, some of us are still waiting to be validated by our fathers. You know, we, we have that, that wound in us. We, we know the desire to be validated to be accepted, to be, to be named as, as beautiful. And Jesus says, those who are longing, who are hungering for that, shall be satisfied. You are going to be filled up because that is the righteousness that Christ offers to us. Now, we'll develop this as we go throughout the sermon. But every single thing in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about, you know, especially in the Beatitudes, I'll definitely bring this up next week, poor in spirit, meekness, uh, um, a mourning, peacemaking, pure in heart, Jesus lives these out. And you know, when we come to the thirsting and the hungering after righteousness, Jesus lived that. He lived that 
on the cross. You remember one of the seven words that Jesus gives us on the cross is, I thirst. I, I, I thirst. He was, he was longing. Now he's speaking of a physical thirst, but he's also pointing us to a depth of longing. And what's so beautiful, because it, it's the gospel, you know, Jesus' thirst was met with sour wine and vinegar. Jesus' longing for acceptance was uh, met by the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Why have you invalidated me? But Jesus went there so that we might be accepted, that we might be satisfied, that we might not thirst in the way that he thirsted on the cross. And this is what Jesus is offering his people in the sermon. He's offering a way of life that is not predicated on your ability to keep the law, but it's predicated on his finished work on the cross. And that is what validates us. It's that alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is apart from ourselves. It's a righteousness whereby God looks at us and though we are not perfect, he says, I see you through the lens of my son. And you're beautiful. You're beautiful. That is the righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. That is the righteousness that Jesus promises. I think I've shared with you before a little kid's story. Uh, corduroy, you remember the little bear? Uh, he's got a problem. He's, uh, his overalls, he's missing a button, and so his shoulder strap is hanging off. And, and he wants to be validated. He wants to be seen as lovely, but no one will by him. And so he, he, he embarks on this uh, self-reclamation project. Uh, he goes throughout the department store, you know, he goes into the different areas, and he's looking for a button because if I can just find the button, I can fix the strap, and then I will be loved. He doesn't find it. He goes back. He's very despondent. And the next day, Lisa comes in. Her eyes are shining, and she points at that bear, and she says to the storekeeper, I want that one. I want that bear. And she buys him, and she takes him home. She pays the price, and when she gets him home, she says, I love you just the way you are, but let's fix that button because you'll be more comfortable this way. That's the validation that Jesus is speaking of here. This is the righteousness that he is offering to you and to me. We're, we're all like that bear. We, we know we don't measure up. Where is our hope? It's not in our own self-reclamation project, but it's in Jesus'. So what's the path? There are two paths. There are two ways. And the, you know, the sermon ends this way, both the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, as well as this Sermon on the Mount 
Matthew chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, we know something about sand in Michigan, right? On the beach, you've seen these houses. You've, uh, some of you have experienced that firsthand. You know, the foundation of sands are shifting, and, and you can lose the entirety of the house. What's interesting here is Jesus is saying there are two houses, and above the ground... The houses look the same. They're they're rising up. They're standing there. They can be equally beautiful on the outside. Remember, he's saying we have to have a righteousness that is different than the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees have a righteousness. They they have something. They have an edifice that stands, and it says it's, it's a beautiful thing. But what they lack is a foundation. And this is why when we talk about the gospel, we say the way up is the way down. And this is why the Beatitudes start with blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those uh, who find themselves empty and are hungering and thirsting. That, that is the way that we find the righteousness that God offers us. So, we're just getting started. We're just getting started, and, and it's, a, it's a message of hope. It's a message of uh, invitation. It's a message that if you allow it to, will transform your life. Now, if like the bear, you're on your own self-reclamation project, if you're seeking to prove yourself to God like the Pharisees or go your own way like the Gentiles, you're not going to find the path. But if you're willing to go down, if you're willing to humble yourself, repent, if you're willing to uh, acknowledge your need, you will find a validation and a love that's beyond anything you ever imagined. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its encouragement, the way that it comes to us even this morning. We pray that we would find that satisfaction, not that comes through our own doing and striving, but it comes from being found by you, uh, the one that we have longed for, the one that we crave. Lord, we pray that you would increase our hunger, uh, that you would uh, allow us to, to see you as the all in all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.